This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Mary Ann Mason, who is a professor and co-director of the Center for Economics and Family Security at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Her most recent book, co-authored with her daughter, Eva Mason Ekman, is Mothers on the Fast Track, How a New Generation Can Balance Family and Careers. Marianne, welcome to Berkeley. <laughs> Thank well, you, you, Harry. <laughs> Sorry, welcome nice to, to the Nice to be pro- here in this room. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Welcome to our program. Uh, where were you born and raised? I was born in Minnesota, Hibbing, Minnesota, Bob Dylan country, uh, maybe one of the coldest places in the world. <laughs> and then I removed quite a lot, went to college and graduate school on the East Coast, and then came to California, where I've been happily here for more than 40 years. <laughs> and, and looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world? Ah, that's a good question. My parents were, if I was an immigration officer, they were not intellectuals. They were very good, decent people. Um, I think they shaped it in part because we moved so often that we were always new places, moving, seeing new things. And as an only child, I spent a lot of time observing what I was seeing. So in some ways, it was a very good preparation for anyone to to be a student of the world. (laughs) And and so in traveling, did you meet a lot of different people at a very young age and different sets of friends? Yes, very much. I think the most memorable probably was um, a convent school in Winnipeg, Canada, uh, very strict, where the nuns were very strict, mainly boarding students and some commuters like myself. And it was always dark in Winnipeg because it's so far north. So I'd start out with my three buses at 7 in the morning, and then I'd take the three buses home in the dark, in the dark. And it, it was in many ways a bleak, a bleak time, but I made such good friendships, and I got to really admire the teachers. I saw a whole different culture in a way that I wouldn't have if I'd been a, in a regular fun high school and having a good time. <laughs> what was the discussion around uh, the dinner table about uh, world issues and also women's issues. When when did that first enter your consciousness? Not around my kitchen table. <laughs> At most, the discussion was, what did you have for lunch today? <laughs> and I think the basement needs fixing or something of that nature. Very good people, but as I say, it wasn't very worldly uh, inside the house. Very and did, supportive. And, and any teachers along this, uh, yes. this circuitous, circuitous yes. thought? In right? terms of the women's movement, I mean, I graduated uh, from Vassar in 1965, which is really just on the cusp. When I was a senior in college, I remember I was reading both Bride magazine because me, like half of my classmates, was going to get married right away on graduation. And I also picked up Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. It was, not, it was just amazing, um, the, the juxtaposition, and it really was that time in history. I had one professor at Vassar, um, Carl Degler, a wonderful historian, uh, and a great mentor, and I did my thesis with him, and he was very encouraging. He said, uh, you must go to graduate school, you must get a PhD. And they were very good at Vassar because they encouraged women to do things that wasn't so common at that time. If I'd been in another school, I would not have gotten that encouragement. And I said, well, thank you, Professor Degler, but I'm sorry, um, I'm getting married this summer. I'll, I'll, I'll go back to school sometime, perhaps, uh, but I have to go where my, where my husband is. And then he asked me where my 
fiancé was. He said, oh, well, they have a wonderful history department. You can go there, and I'm sure you can get uh, a fellowship, a national fellowship. Uh, why don't you apply for it? I'll help you with it. Oh, thank you, Professor Dagler. And then he actually, he didn't stalk me, but every time he saw me on campus, he'd come over and say, Miss Mason, have you applied yet, Miss Mason? Oh, Professor Dagler, I'm, I'm getting around to it. So finally I applied, and I got it. And so I started uh, a Ph.D. program where my first husband was in um, getting his Ph.D. And I knew we'd be there just for a short time, but because I'd started and really loved it, I continued when we, got back, when we moved out to Berkeley. And that, he made all the difference. And, and what, what drew you to history? Well, I was a history um, major as an undergraduate, and it was, now that I think about it, it was, it was kind of like my early days of traveling. It was seeing the world from different perspectives. Um, it was just, to me, opening up all more interesting than novels, because it was whole civilizations and whole, whole governments, and just all of the world's knowledge was there. And then I loved, loved, loved. And those were the days when you spent time in the stacks just with your nose in the primary sources and reading letters from the French Revolution. It was just very exciting. And, and so talk, talk now, let's relate this to your emerging consciousness about women's issues. You mentioned reading Betty Friedan in, as an undergraduate. So I, I get the sense in reading about you that the life you were living uh, and the movement around you, the, the women's movement, really opened up your kind. So there was a, uh, an interaction there between the, the life you were living and what the women movement was saying. Right. I came out to Berkeley in 1967, and that will raise anyone's consciousness about everything. <laughs> it was the days of the, the riots and the free speech and the anti-Vietnam. It was, it was really quite thrilling, and all your suppositions and understandings of everything are just up for, up for grabs. So it was very active. And the women's movement was very nascent then. This was just the end of the 60s. It started to grow, and I joined the consciousness-raising movement, like many women, uh, and then we started, I was teaching, uh, while I was a graduate student at a small college, Holy Names College in Oakland, and we got together all the women in California who were teaching at four-year, teaching history at four-year colleges, and there were eight of us. It was really a very tiny band, and a lot of closed doors, only 1.3 women historians in all the uh, UC campuses, and all nine UC campuses. So I think that raised my consciousness more than anything else, to know that it still was such a closed door, that there was a lot of talk, but very little action in terms of opening the doors. When I finally got to Berkeley as a professor in 1989, uh, things had changed dramatically, and I think at that time about uh, 15% of the faculty were women, but it was only 2% of all the faculty in 1972, so it was a huge shift during that period of time. As a historian, what was your, your focus, and, and how did that focus change over time? Yes, uh, it was American labor history, which is part of American social history, so in some ways it really didn't change over time. It's always looking at the masses rather than the classes and what they're doing and what's happening. And I did my uh, dissertation in the Bancroft Library on a California labor leader, um, and I loved it. I mean, I loved every minute of being on this campus and doing my dissertation. I didn't get back for many years, but I really loved being here at the time. Like most graduate students, these are the best years of my life. <laughs> at, at a certain point, you decide that you want to move beyond history and uh, undertake a law degree. Well, I don't know that people's lives, certainly women's lives, are not that, I think, clearly guided from, from within. Um, what happened is a small college that I was teaching at 
They didn't go co-ed, but St. Mary's, which was the men's college. Similar thing happened in the East Coast when men's colleges went co-ed, and a lot of the women's colleges lost their basically lost their students. So they let go all of their lay faculty one year. And I had just actually had a, a child by this time. He was just a year and a half, I think. And I just didn't want to be a, a gypsy scholar or sort of a, I just didn't know. So I went to law school just because I, I didn't know. And I continued to teach history while I was in law school, actually. So I went over, actually went over three years, three and a half years. Um, and was always teaching history, first at, uh, at San Francisco State and then actually full-time at St. Mary's. Um, again, looking back, it's, you make patterns of your life retrospectively, I think, rather than the time. You just sort of move with the flow. <laughs> but I, I did like law a lot. It was very interesting to me and still is. And, and you, uh, several of your books are actually on family law and, and uh, divorce and, and the rights of children and so yes, on. Yes, the rights of children and child custody are, are my specialties, and step-parents to some extent as well. So I did spend uh, many years teaching children in the law and family law, juvenile court law. And how do you account for this particular focus, or, or do you? Ah, that's a good question. Um, Yes. I, actually, I, I know exactly why I did. I wrote a book in 1989 called The Equality Trap, which was about basically opening up the doors to women, but not leveling the playing field. So you were kind of setting women up for, for failure. And women themselves at that time did not want to be accommodationists. So they were not asking for any kind of mommy track, uh, paid leave or flexible time. This was considered to be, in fact, my book was considered to be a little bit of a traitor to the movement because I was talking about accommodations. And then I realized when I, I came to Berkeley um, that the way that you can do that is actually through children. You can think about women's issues through children and get a lot of the same structural changes that you might have um, if you had just focused on women. And at that time, to be honest, um, I suppose I was playing it a little more safe than perhaps, just in the sense that being a feminist um, anything was not necessarily a popular thing in terms of getting tenure at Berkeley. <laughs> but more than that, I really was interested in children who were very, very understudied. Um, even now, there are so few books about children and children's history and children's culture. We've actually started, Paula Fass here on campus has really begun this movement, and we, many of us are doing the history of childhood in various ways. Uh, it, it's interesting because it, it's very clear that central to your work is kind of a focus on the family. Yes. And, and you just suggested that in a way that the early feminists may have been um, overly dismissive of the family in their efforts to get liberation and equality for women. Is that a fair assessment? Well, the, yes. I, I mean, I think it's an understandable assessment because they had been, women have always been so closely stereotyped and caught in the family that there was no opportunity for them to change or grow. So I certainly understand why there was a rejection of the family. In fact, uh, in my years when I my children were born, it was kind of the don't ask, don't tell years. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't, um, you didn't bring them to school. You didn't even tell your professors, and or or the professors. I remember when my son was born. I would think I was um, finishing my PhD, and the professors kind of looked at your pregnant self and never mentioned it, and you didn't mention it, and that was that was the way it was. So it wasn't considered an advantage, and it was considered something that was your own problem. It was not not a social or a workplace problem. You you probably have thought a lot about 
how the women's movement has had to evolve. And, and I assume you bring a, a kind of a sense of history and uh, a historian's way of looking at that. Uh, talk a little about that evolution. Uh, we're, as we do this interview, we're celebrating the anniversary of Betty Friedan's book. So there's a lot in the press and this new book uh, by the CEO of, uh, of uh, Facebook, uh, Sheryl Sandberg, on Leaning In. So, so help, reflect a little on what you've seen of the women's movement and, and how it's impacted you and so on. Of course, when I think of the women's movement as an historian, I think of 1848 and Seneca Falls Convention, the first women's rights convention and the suffragettes. Uh, and mainly in those those first years, women tried so hard to get just very basic rights. And those rights were really voting rights, uh, not so much, uh, and to some extent, divorce. But the women's movement actually was very always very mixed on the divorce issues. But the current women's movement has really been focused on economic gain and in uh, entry into the workplace. And it's really not coincidental that it's the same time that the family wage is, is no longer possible. Men can't support women and children. My father did on an immigration officer's salary and bought a car and a little house, but not possible today. So the workplace opened up not because the women banged on the door. It opened up because the economy shifted and we needed two incomes to do it. But it also opened up for women going into professions and fields that had been very, very dominated by men. Um, so it was that, that's the thrust of this current women's movement, which was not the case for the older women's movements. And because the thrust was to get into the economic structure, um, I think the first wave felt strongly that they had to do it on men's terms. It was the only way they're going to be able to, to make it. And to some extent, there's still a truth to that, a strong truth to that. So there was really a, a fear of recognition that um, there would be anything holding them back or anything that would possibly tie them still to the family, either psychologically or structurally or whatever. Uh, and that, that really began to change happily. As I said, I wrote this book in 1989 that talked about accommodation in the workplace. And, yet, and then in um, 2000, when I started working on this issue again as graduate dean, um, I was really pleased to hear that it was a welcome voice. My voice was welcome. And people were looking at structure, structural change, and not just on doing it like the men. Children and families had been noticed in the meantime. Um, and that was, that, that was very good. Although I have to say, um, the younger generation, my daughter uh, and her friends, never knew that there'd be any problem <laughs> because they assumed that, although they had no children and had no family, because they were raised in such an egalitarian atmosphere, they didn't recognize that they might run into bumps at all. So I asked her to write the book with me so that she could interview a lot of the women, like Diane Feinstein, women who had been there and done that with families. Um, it was a very, very strong experience for her. You're, you're suggesting in your work and, and now that, that really both the family and, and women's issues uh, sort of uh, feel the pressures uh, of the changes in society, both internationally and nationally. So, so globalization enters into this discussion. Inequality enter, is in, enters into this discussion. And also the divisions within the women's movement, namely uh, working class women who have to work versus professional women who, uh, say, can hire a nanny to do some of the functions uh, at home. I, in the equality trap, I called it women who work to live 
and women who lived to work. And to some extent, that division was even clearer then than it is now, I think, because the first group of feminists who got into professional uh, organizations were very, very strong and organized and brought suits, and they they opened the doors. Uh, And the second group now, I think, is... uh, wondering why it didn't all turn out like they wanted, like Anne-Marie Slaughter's book on how hard it is, you can't have it all, etc. I think this is very good that this debate is raised again, because I think it was quiet for a while, and now they're raising it with kind of different stakes, but a lot of the same old arguments. Do do you think there's a better conversation within the women's movement between the different uh, classes within the women's movement so that... that, uh, 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 professional, uh, wealthy women can understand the situation of, of working class women who, ha- who really have to work? No. And I think that's never been the strength of the women's movement. It's always been very articulate, well-educated, professional, or, or at least certainly college-educated women, often authors or journalists, etc., who have run the conversation. Not much attention to the most women who are the low-income workers and and have to work. The only thing I can say about that, which is um, kind of interesting, in the last um, 30 years, the great time divide, that um, women who are lower income actually are working fewer hours, partly because they have they don't have enough hours. They're working hourly rates often. And women who are professionals have shot up in terms of the number of hours. So they're working many more hours than the women who are in more uh, low-income jobs. So we've, we've we're essentially uh, working harder all the time if you if you actually shattered that ceiling in any way or got even into any kind of profession. So so you you are a lawyer. You are a historian. Uh, and then you become a university administrator. Yes. And uh, so, so talk a little about that before we get into uh, one of the, the way you tried to address the women's issue as a graduate dean. Uh, what, what is, what's the difference in the skills required for each of these uh, professions? Well, there are different skill sets, no question about it. I mean, th- this university system has a, tr- a tradition of taking people from the faculty. And the strong part about that is that you, you're you on the side of the faculty, uh, although people say you've gone to the dark side, and you, under- you understand the inherent problems with faculty. You understand the structure of the university, probably. But many people who are appointed to these jobs with these huge budgets may have never looked at an accounting sheet or have much sense of that or have worked with personnel before. And any kind of manager, those are the two big things, the the budget and the personnel. So that is a kind of a a steep curve for many. Actually, I had some administrative jobs when I was a a lawyer, so I, I had a little experience on a smaller scale. Berkeley has as you know, more graduate students than anybody. So it's it's a much larger scale in terms of budget and uh, personnel. But also the good part about large institutions like this, you just say, well, send it to legal, send it to, <laughs> to some extent. I mean, you have to manage it, but you have a lot of people to help you as well and very talented um, mid-level administrators at this university. The reason I wanted, I was, well, actually, I was kind of surprised that they wanted me to be dean, honestly. I had been active on the campus, and I was acting associate dean for a period of time, and I enjoyed it. The thing I liked most about it, both in uh, terms of faculty senate camp, uh, uh, faculty senate kinds of uh, service, um, and also being the associate dean, is that you get to see 
the wide breadth of this incredible university. You know, most of us are just are stuck in our departments, and you just see the same limited number of people. But this is such a, an incredibly fabulous place, 105 graduate programs. I always said I could recognize the, the name if I saw it, but I couldn't, I couldn't rattle it off. There's so many. And each of them has got just a wealth of information, brilliance, discovery, innovation, and it's just breathtaking. I, that's, that was the, the, the most wonderful part about being dean, to be able to see all of it, the whole scope of it. So in this new position, how did you come to identify the problem of women, their careers, and, and the university. Was, just, was this just a, a, a natural choice, given your background? Well, it, it was a natural choice. It was made a lot easier because when I first arrived, there was a small research unit um, that had been put in place by my predecessor. And Mark Golden, who's been my, my partner in research all these years, uh, was and it was a staff a staff person there, and he came to me and he said, I know you're interested in family issues. I guess he knew something about my background. He said, we have this great database, and it's got all the PhDs that ever got their PhDs since 1973, and it's longitudinal. They follow them through every two years, 10%. I can ask questions for you, like I can say, look at your graduate students now. Who is going to fall out? Who's going to stay in? What effect does family formation have on them? I was thrilled because this is the kind of information that I knew could really make a difference. I mean, data speak, if you've got numbers and you've got, I knew that much about the university. The only things that change things are when you've got a lot of evidence to show why it needs changing. And he's a great researcher, and we, we started out and did the research, started with just a baseline survey of um, all the UC faculty on family issues, how many children they had, what concerns they had, had they ever used any policies, etc. Uh, and that was a real catalyst, because then we had some real information. And then we started cr crunching some of the numbers with this survey of Dr. Recipient. And the Sloan Foundation found me. Uh, and literally, this is what the Sloan Foundation did in these days. If they found someone who they thought was doing really interesting work in the area, this case was work, work family, they just supported you. So they supported us for, for 10 years. And that allowed us to add, actually, just maybe one more person. It was always a, a small staff. And to sort of think big visions about what we could do next. So it was a wonderful, thrilling time because we produced the data. We did um, the UC faculty. We did all the doctoral students. We did all the postdocs and the systems. And we had these huge samples that nobody ever had. And you could really say something pretty strong about um, how graduate students felt about the university. Do they think it was family-friendly? What were their plans? And you could get enormous amount of information just by asking people. Surveys are not easy to do because no one likes to answer them, so we had to rely on the president of the university and the chancellors to really kind of push people along to do it. But they were willing. They were willing. So we had a really good timing and a set of issues that was critical, clearly, to a lot of people. And producing all the the data that we did at a time when no one else had data was was very timely. And and were the were were the right questions already being asked, or did you have to come in and say, well, what about this and what about that? So, uh, what was the degree of addition that you were bringing to the table in addition to identifying the what could be done here because of your knowledge of the problems? Well, we did. We, we created the survey, so you could ask all the questions you thought would be relevant, uh, and we tried to do some carry-through questions between the faculty and the postdocs and the graduate students, like, um, 
how busy is everybody? Looking at a household for particular, if you had a, a child and a mother and a father, who works the most hours? And you saw a distinct and almost identical second shift for mothers between the faculty, the graduate students, and the postdocs who had children in the home. And a huge second shift, an additional 20 hours to what the fathers were doing, and 30 hours over what, or 40 hours over what everyone else was doing. When you see it like that and you see them identical, you know this is not just a generational issue, that things are, are still pretty much the way they were. That particular finding in the slide that we had with it, I think, was one of the most eye-opening for everyone to know that it's still largely a mother's problem, and that's, that, is, that is an issue. That was one of the groundbreakers. So we knew the questions, and then in terms of what policies to, to do, really fortunate there were people in the office of the president who had some ideas. A lot of people have good ideas, and although this system is large and sometimes ungainly. It's very centralized. So when you're doing anything like personnel policy or leaves or um, maternity benefits, it, all the campuses do it all together. So we could do UC-wide family-friendly policies uh, in one, one fell scoop. <laughs> now, now I want to break this down and, and walk you through the data in a minute, but... but uh, I think a very important point that you make in, in summarizing a lot of this in, in one of the papers I read uh, is that previously most of the focus had been on uh, ensuring women's equality by looking at representation, yes. you know, and salary. Yes. But but what, what was being added now to the equation was... Uh, measuring also what was happening to the family, who was assuming the burden of responsibility in the family, and what were the costs of that for women in their efforts to be equal in society. We were adding that. We were adding another thing because we we stood the basic question, what is the effect of family formation on the career lives of men and women, on its head and asked, what is the effect of careers on family. And here we showed even a greater discrepancy than who gets to be a tenured faculty in terms of, of those people who are tenured faculty, who has children in a marriage and who doesn't. Huge gap. I think it's 42% for tenured faculty women versus 75% for tenured faculty men. So you have a gap in both ways, kind of a double gap there. There are fewer women at the top, and those that are have fewer families, fewer children, and are less likely to be married. So it's kind of a double whammy. I call it double trouble for gender equity. <laughs> and then we also did find the discrepancy in the hours of work, as you say. Right. So, so uh, uh, in this data, were you surprised by some of the findings, or did it just confirm... What you had already thought. What I was really surprised at is that um, most of the leak out of the pipeline, uh, both men and women likely leave, but more women than men, actually occurred during, well, after they got their PhD, but they changed their mind during the graduate school years and during the postdoc years. They make up their mind. They change their career goals away from their original choice and are more likely to drop out highly more likely to drop out if they have children. Like with postdocs, a woman who has a child while they're a postdoc is 41% say they're no longer going to pursue their career. Just too damn hard. 
uh, whereas the fathers, only 20% changed their mind, and the single women, 19%. So you have a huge gap, and the graduate students as well, a huge gap from the beginning when they enter their graduate program to two or three years later. They have already changed their minds because they see the faculty more differently. They don't have that many women models. Uh, if they have a child, they'll definitely, definitely, or not definitely, but far more likely not to go on. So you see that the impact of policies is not just on faculty, where there had been some attention, but also on the graduate students and the postdocs. So I put a lot of attention with, with those two groups as well to try to keep the pipeline going. At the heart of all of this seems to be <clears throat> uh, questions about women's role in the family and whether women, and i got to be careful here, I say this, <laughs> but that, that women are different and we should embrace that uh, in the sense that they, uh, they, well, no, I don't, I don't think I want to say what I was just saying. <laughs> what, I, what I want to say is that, that the default position is that women are the custodians of the family in a way that men had not been, but the structures, if changed, might change that relationship. Right, and one of the major focuses in changing the structure was to get fathers to participate more. And I have to say we've been quite successful at that. Um, in 1980, I think it was President Gardner, had actually put in place for the UC system some family-friendly policies like stopping the clock and a semester off for, of teaching for childbirth that had been in place. They were incredibly far-sighted and progressive at the time. By the time we did our survey in 2002, most people didn't even know they existed. It had fallen totally out of favor. And the women sometimes used them, but fathers never used them, even though they had access to stop the clock and some childbirth leave as well. So the new, the new policies we put in place really focused on fathers. They now get, at Berkeley, a semester off from teaching if they are at least a half-time caretaker. And mothers get two semesters off and stop the clock. And the really good part is men are really taking it up. And we're really seeing fathers participating um, in child raising in a way that we haven't before. And this is happening at other universities as well. It's the only way, ultimately, our first feminist, uh, well, the early feminist days in the 1970s, the belief was as long as you got women out in the workplace, et cetera, the home would take care of itself and equality would simply happen. <laughs> but it didn't happen. And it wasn't just because I think men increasingly want more time with their with their babies, even child care for sure. But the, the workplace did not make it um, possible. Now, even if the workplace makes it possible, they have to get over the, the cultural issues of men are the breadwinners and women are the, the nurturers. Uh, those are still very strong and in place, although you probably know that um, 35% of all American families are headed by single women uh, breadwinners. And of those that are married, women bring in 40% of the income. So the breadwinner issue is not what it used to be by any means. In fact, I think there isn't any clear division between mothers and fathers in terms of bringing things into the household. Uh, but the culture still supports that to some extent. So that that's a real barrier and one of the things we've really tried to work on. Because unless you have the fathers playing the game, the mothers won't either. So, so in, a, in a way, what the, the data tells you is the, 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 the way the family is structured is not conducive 
for achieving equality for women and that one has to tinker with the family structure, change the culture of the family structure so that men uh, uh, share more equally in the burdens of household work, taking care of the children, daycare, and so on. Right. But it really all begins with structural changes in the institutions because um, men don't have the opportunity to stay at home unless they're given some sort of parental leave or incentives to do so, nor do women. So you have to have the workplace change for both men and women. And then the the home will reflect that or could reflect that if the culture worked at it strongly enough. And as I said, I feel some some good things happening here at Berkeley, particularly because the percentage of men taking this active service modified duty to help with um, childbirth and babies has really grown. And the um, percentage of the number of babies born to assistant professor women has doubled since 2003 and has gone up 60% for men. So we're in a baby boom. <laughs> it's embracing the idea of parenthood. Now, this is not a fix, and the fix is not going to be simple or easy, but I think there is a realization that um, that it's not going to work unless unless fathers participate as well. And the fathers actually like it. All the opinion polls, you say, they all say, I wish I could do more, but you know, it doesn't make it easy at work. I'm teased if I do it. I'm not going to get promoted. There's discrimination against me for for being the mother, you know, playing the mommy role, and that's still not a cultural, uh, culturally accepted. And, and previously, before you institute these changes, when you looked at the data, men were not suffering in the way that women were. Women were essentially opting out yes. of the, the system yes. in order to be the caretaker at home and to have take the time to have yes. children, whereas the men continued to go on their merry way in a way. Yes, and in fact, married men with children are the most successful, not just in the university world, but across the board, uh, partly because they don't have as much responsibility at home, but also partly because I think there's the attitude for instance, uh, among in science, that if a man has a child, then he's really serious. I mean, this will really hold him down because he has, you know, responsibilities. It makes him more responsible. Woman has a child. Well, bye bye. She's left science. She has other priorities. She's not going to be a responsible scientist. So it's a negative image for the woman and a positive image for the man. That's only part of it, of course. The structural issues are, are in, important as well. So it's a combination of them. But the structure has to change first in order to make it possible for the culture to promote fathers to spend more time at home. with and, and how hard is that politically to, to, to do, actually? Well, it becomes, I mean, the good part about any kind of cultural change, nothing happens, or just institutional change, and then all of a sudden it happens quickly because it gets competitive. We named our, our project the UC Competitive Edge, and the idea is that we were going to have family-friendly policies so we would get the best and the brightest. And actually, it has worked to, to some extent, and all the other universities now have to get on the bandwagon. So the competition has kind of changed. The used to be that if you went to an interview, you'd never mentioned if you had children or you know family. It was no, no. Now often people will say, and we have this great family-friendly policy. They'll bring it up themselves. Um, it's it's really a. a, a a real sea change in terms of how people look at those policies and think of it as an asset rather than something they're going to avoid talking to. Most, at least research universities, now have someone who's, whose main position is to help families when they, when they arrive, to find jobs and to find schools, and also to help uh, women through 
these issues if they are a faculty. Less attention paid to postdocs and graduate students, which is something I'm still writing about and caring about. Another structure that you identified uh, as this data began pouring out was the structure of tenure, basically. Yes. And and, uh, as I understand it, the, the problem here is that uh, the, the childbearing years for women coincide, namely 30 to 40, yeah. coincide, especially in the sciences, with the, what is perceived to be the creative period when careers take off and, and research uh, 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 it piles up basically, to then justify tenure. Talk a little about that. Well, I call those years the make-or-break decade. And it's not just for scientists or even just for university professors. In all the professions, that's usually the time, if you're in business or if you're in law or or medicine, uh, by the time you're 40, you have to have basically firmly pin down your career and your place in it. And everything does pretty much happen during that decade. You finish your training, you begin your job, you do whatever. The academic world is tougher because it's intense. It's up or out. You really don't have any wiggle room. You have those six or years or whatever it is, five or six years to get to tenure. And they're going to be probably the most intense years of your career because much is expected of you. And plus teaching all new courses. I mean, it's a very tough time for all new assistant professors. And even places that didn't really require too many publications now require them. So it's, it's, a, it's a hotbed. And because in the academic world, it's, it takes longer and longer to get that PhD for many different reasons, but you often don't get a PhD until you're 33, 34, or your postdoc, because scientists finish early, but take a while. So you're really brushing onto 40 by the time you get tenure. It's 40 plus. So women are likely to kind of wait if they're going to get tenure or think, I just can't do this, or have that child at the most busy time and can't make the, the real push to, to get tenure and, and drop out then. So it's a, it's a really difficult problem. It's more intense in the sciences, perhaps, because it, sciences are so competitive and their belief is that if you, you know, if you, if you leave the lab for 20 minutes, practically you've lost the game. There is this notion that it's a race, and if you go to the race at any time, you won't be able to get back in. But you see it across the board. So the idea that somehow your career is over if you haven't made it by 40 um, really needs to be changed in terms of how we look at the... Because you're going to have another probably 40 years of or 30 years of work in your career. And if you miss the boat during that period of time, there haven't been many second chances. So second chances is another thing that I've really promoted. Uh, I can't say that had much luck here at the university system. When you're out, you're out. But um, in the science world, because I also deal with NSF and uh, NASA, the idea of re-entry postdocs is getting some traction. So I'm hoping that the re-entry postdoc, which would be good for all kinds of fields, actually, and certainly good in the uh, academic world. So the idea is that you, w- you could drop out, yes. but then drop in. Drop in again. Once you had... And so I think for most people, at any rate, it's the you know first three or four years that are the most intense in terms of... Uh, Child raising. It doesn't mean that children don't need attention all the time, but they have spread out into a, a larger group. They don't really want just mommy all the time, or they want to have they want to have a structure outside the home, and they do. They're, they're in preschool, they're wherever they are. Uh, so you're less essential on a, on a in terms of the time factor that goes into it, and also just less 
less in terms of the physical factor. They're no longer attached to you, literally in the same way, breastfeeding or whatever. Um, so it is, it is quite reasonable for many women after two or three years, if they take that long, um, to come back, and men as well. I mean, or for any family event. It's not just childbirth. We have family events throughout our lives, often unpredictable. It can be just an illness. It can be your spouse's illness. It can be your mother or father's illness that take you out of the workplace. Much easier later in life because if you have tenure or security of employment of some kind, you can take that time um, and they can't do anything. They can't fire you for it, basically. So, so the argument opposed to uh, making uh, life for women easier who want to have children is is what is it that well this is the way we do it and this is the way we've always done it or is it well this is the most creative time in a scientist's life and if we don't get that creativity out of them in this period uh, then it won't happen. What, what's going on here? <laughs> well, science, as I say, is more likely to think this way. I think uh, law or English literature or, or any other field could understand the value of coming back after three years and not having lost your mind, literally. But in science, there seems to be this belief that you can't think like a scientist. I think what's going on here is just um, partly a reflection of the, the competitiveness the, the grant world has gotten into. But what the granting agencies are doing now is discounting the resume gap. In other words, looking at your grant applications and thinking if, there, if you have explained that there was childbirth involved here, then it doesn't, it's a different view that they'll take with it, which is a very good thing. The reentry postdoc. I mean, there are many things you can do to rethink a system so it doesn't have the same punishing effect just in this one period of time. Because these scientists have trained for a long time and a huge investment has been made in them. It takes at least, I think, half a million dollars to put someone through a PhD and, and then more for a postdoc, etc. And this is lost an investment, lost investment as well as lost brains. And that's, it's, it's a foolish kind of economic uh, uh, analysis. So this is kind of the message that I'm trying to get across and actually has, seems to be working pretty well, that we have to look at this differently. It may be that people do, or some people do their most productive work up to 30, but that doesn't mean that all scientists do that either. I'm sure many scientists do wonderful work in their 40s as well, and 50s. Um, and again, a highly trained mind should not be let, let go. And that is what's happening too often. One of the issues that keeps coming up is that these, the, the change in the status of women is related to the broader changes in society. And so you pointed out earlier that uh, as there was greater and greater inequality, that the, the woman's salary was needed in the home to, to keep uh, the, uh, the family uh, uh, fiscally sound. Now, in addition, another th change that's going on quite clear relates to what you call the second tier. So it, it, given the situation that was in existence, women, if they didn't drop out, you say they dropped down to second tier positions, uh, adjuncts, part-time lecturers, and so on. Talk a little about that, because that was a benefit to the system as a whole, yes. but not necessarily to women. Yes. Um, the fastest growing sector of academia 
is the second tier, the part-time and adjunct. The percentage of tenure-track faculty has gone down from something like 58% to 37% over a period of 20 years. Uh, and that's largely because the model is use more adjuncts, use more part-time. And it's largely been disproportionately women with children. There's now a labor force that is... I suppose, kind of stuck and will take those jobs, even though they're incredibly underpaid, underbenefited, marginalized, etc. Um, so we're, we're kind of raising the second tier um, in academia with, and making it a whole lot more worse, <laughs> a whole lot worse by reducing the number of, of tenure track slots. It's a different model for academia. Um, I won't even. I probably shouldn't talk about what's happening at, at UC, but never mind. We're going to UC. But in the state universities, there are more, far more faculty teaching undergraduate courses who are not tenure track than there are tenure track. Uh, in the university, it has not had that because partly because we have a lot of graduate students who help out. But we've had a pretty good faculty ratio. That's reducing and reducing and reducing. And now the classes are being taught more frequently by adjuncts or lecturers, etc. In professional schools, the adjuncts have always had a strong role, like in law or uh, public health, because it is a professional school, so the the training on the ground is, is quite useful. But now you're seeing it in, in many other fields as well. Um, I think that's very bad for academia. I, a lot of women will say, a lot of women will say that it's good for mothers, because then you don't have all that pressure to get tenure, but it's bad for academia, because it just dilutes dilutes the quality of works so much. You don't have the the possibility of innovation and free thinking that you have with a tenure system. Therefore, you're not going to have the kind of innovative knowledge uh, and cultural contributions that you have that you have now with the tenure system. And eventually, more sooner, probably sooner rather than later, the best and the brightest will not want to get PhDs. They'll consider this, particularly if there are very few jobs, even for men as well as women. There's there's just no, no, no place to go. I, I fear that that is um, happening. So I really promote the tenure system, even though some people say it works negatively for women, because I think if you had a, a different kind of tenure system, and in fact, one of our reforms was to put in place a part-time pre-tenure as well as post-tenure track. So you actually can, in the, in the UC system, now go for 10 years in a part-time position uh, and still, still come up for tenure after 10 years. Two important tools that you identify in your work uh, uh, as graduate dean and now in, in the work you're doing uh, to, to promote these ideas is, on the one hand, the role of the law, the legal system, uh, and you reference uh, Title IX here, which guarantees these rights. But then the other is getting the word out, yeah. basically, that people should know their rights, yes. you know, and and seek to realize them. Yes, I just actually today, I think, finished a law review article on just this topic because almost no one um, knows, whenever I, I lecture I, to other universities, I say, um, how many of you knew that pre- pregnancy discrimination is part of Title IX? Huh? It is? <laughs> so it's unknown. And Obama administration has put a very big drive on uh, Title IX compliance, because not just pregnancy discrimination, but sexual harassment and other aspects of it have not been that well uh, followed or complied with. And as part of this, he doesn't mention this, but uh, NASA guidelines do. Pregnancy discrimination is, is a strong part. And that's particularly important for the kinds of things that I'm concerned about, because you have these graduate students and postdocs who do not generally get protection from FMLA 
or uh, Title VII because they're often considered trainees rather than employees. So they don't get any kind of legal protection. And this will give, Title IX will give them the same kind of protection they would get under Title VII or under uh, FMLA. It also means that if they have to drop out of a course or a class, that they have the right to go back and regain their status so they don't just lose momentum and, and fail to graduate or fa- fail to to finish on the project that they're on, etc. It gives them a lot of protection in hiring and, and um, accommodate all kinds of ways that they're just not aware of. So that, in general, students, and certainly uh, you can understand this, are very reluctant to complain about anything because this is their, these are their professors and their livelihood. But if you have a strong system in place where people know that they have the right, they don't have to complain directly to the professor. They can go to the Title IX officer. It can be, it can be done anonymously. It will be checked out. And then, of course, if, if they don't get satisfaction, they have the right to sue as well. That will, that will often um, jolt a university into action in terms of uh, complying or, or doing more in this line. I do think this is a very fruitful way because it would change the culture um, particularly for graduate students and postdocs. And I think it would help everyone to know who's employed on a, with an educational institution that receives any federal money that they have a lot of rights they're probably not aware of, more than just uh, workplace rights. There are all these rights about uh, being accepted into educational programs, not being kicked out, et cetera, uh, really a rich, a rich database, which uh, have been not known and not complied with. But I think that is going to be changing, so I'm hopeful about this. Another, another new frontier. <laughs> what, what, what is the responsibility of uh, the individual woman student or the young professional? Uh, what is it that they can do for themselves beyond the change in structure, beyond the law, beyond uh, the dissemination of information? Well, first of all, they should know their rights to fully use the kinds of tools they have and to know the workplace policies that exist and to push for them. That, But aside from that, I think you're, you're, you're probably talking about the lean-in issue. <laughs> right. Well, I do think uh, uh, it's not totally black and white. She clearly doesn't talk enough about institutional change or about family, etc., because that is at least our research shows, clearly the major reason why women drop out. But it is true that women often don't negotiate well, they don't ask for enough, they they are perhaps more reluctant in some cases. To some extent, it's density as well. Uh, when I was first dean, I was the first women graduate dean, I was the only woman dean on campus for a couple of years. And it is a little intimidating to be on the cabinet and uh, everyone is not a woman, and you have to act in a different way. You learn how to... Uh, talk lowly and slowly and wait and pause, not to speak too much, but to be sure that you reference someone else and with the hope that they might actually reference you sometime, which rarely happens to women, and then to always have a lot of data. So I'd come in armed with PowerPoints. <laughs> and I'm, obviously that's not my background. I'm not a statistician, but the only way you make your points is to you know, sort of not so much do it like the guys, but to be serious uh, and uh, to show that you're a serious person. That got easier as more women came became deans and uh, their voices were different kinds of voices. And it was just, it, with density, things do improve. And as you know, women are not always so good about helping other women, particularly the older school. I guess I am the older school, but, but nonetheless, in, in my day, the older school wasn't because they, you know, they'd made their sacrifices and they got here by whatever means, et cetera, and, or they chose not to have children and why should they do their work, your work for them? So this is not necessarily an old, an, a girls club that, 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 uh, 
that help each other. Although I have to say, at this university, when I first came, the AAW, uh, which is the Faculty Women's Association, was wonderful. They had everyone be, had a mentor. Um, from a different department, and they really did help the young assistant professors because they'd had a terrible time getting tenure in previous years. A couple of lawsuits helped, and the mentoring helped as well. So they can be very helpful. Um, as I say, dense, the lack of the density helps. Also, the issue of service, and there was there's been some research on it, not ours but others, that even women who get tenure often kind of slog out as associate professors, and their pay shows the the kind of slow pace they're on, because that cumulatively means they get paid less toward the end of their career. Um, and one of the major reasons, according to this research, was that they're always asked to do more service um, than than our men. And maybe they're less likely to say no, I don't know. But women do more service overall, generally speaking, than men do, at least according to this research. It's not something I've researched. Against. Uh, bottom line is that that we have to achieve this complete and real access for women because they they can bring uh, their creativity, their intelligence, and maybe a different set of values uh, as we look at uh, the array of, of policy issues that we confront. Yes, I mean, this is a very disputed area, whether women really do have different leadership qualities, etc. Um, but I, I think it's it's fairly clear that they're more cooperative in terms of their style, uh, and they're less likely to blow up. <laughs> at, least, at least the women I know. I don't know. Um, you just, I, it, it's not necessarily because they're women. It's because they're also managing children and family and dozen other things. So they, they get to be, I would actually rather hire a mother of, of three children who are perhaps in school by this time, but than almost anyone else because they just get things done. They, they don't waste time. There's, no, there's no, no doubt about it. They've got a task and they'll get it done. So I think those qualities are, are very good in women as well, even whether whether they have children or not, I think they, they're good. Uh, so I haven't written on this or examined this, but just uh, observationally, um, women do make more cooperative leaders and are less likely to fly off the handle and do rash things. <laughs> that, doesn't, that, you know, that doesn't mean that, uh, that they're better leaders than men, they just have a different style. Uh, looking back at your career, I'm, I'm curious how you would uh, evaluate the interplay between political movements, the legal system, and the changes that occur, but then uh, essentially the, the power that comes with administrative positions to actually try to make change. Uh, we've touched on all three of these in, in your career, and, and it seems like it it takes all of them and not one or the other is enough. Well, there are individuals who who do wonderful things, whether they've had a background in this nature or whatever. Um, the issue with administration is interesting because I'm doing this work now with, which is largely policy work, our research is, is and it, it, it has a, a conclusion in policy, otherwise I wouldn't find it that interesting just to be another publication. It's, it's not that interesting to you. But it's not the kind of work for which you get tenure or climb the ladder. And I didn't do policy work for many years. I wrote um, History of Child Custody in America. I wrote a lot of law reviews. I did things that were interesting to me, but were not going to change the world because 
I wasn't in a position to, and it's not what you do as a professor. You want to do things that are scholarly, and you're, you're rated only on your contribution to scholarship, not on changing the world. So it, when you're an administrator, uh, you have more power to change the world, and if you take off your I-must-get-tenure hat, then you really can use research, I think, in a positive way, but not that many faculty can. And the faculty on this campus are, have such brilliance among them, um, it's always wonderful when someone makes use of their work to change the world, because rarely are they in a position to do it. Um, Because, you know, outside of politics, where you are in a position and you're encouraged, that's why you're elected to change things, I don't think university administrators are are elected or appointed to change things. (laughs) So it's it's something you take on if you, maybe the president is, or the chancellor, but others are meant to kind of Run, run the ship of state, and but some make wonderful changes too. But by bringing information to the agenda, you yes. can yes. Ma- make exactly. some change. Unique yeah. information, because if I had that unique information and was not a high-level administrator, it would be very much harder to to get any any policy results from it. So that those positions are very important for that. If if students were to watch uh, this video and sort of your reflections on your own career, what what advice would you give them uh, in in terms of preparing for the future? Well, um, just don't give up your dreams. It may not happen exactly how you think. I think we should actually have a high school class called Life 101 in which they do a, a life script. I mean, they can review it every five years or whatever, but to have a sort of a long-range idea of how you would like your life to unfold and, and check in on it and not give up on it because you're going to be waylaid. So take second chances when they come. I've had several second chances in my life which have have allowed me to be here, have allowed me to do a number of different things, and you have to just grab them when they come along your way, because I think almost everyone gets a variety of opportunities, at least in this country they do, and they pick and choose some or the others. The other advice I give to women, at least in this book I did, um, don't marry a jerk. <laughs> you know, all the women that we interviewed for this this book who were very successful, like Diane Feinstein or corporate heads or people, the women who had really had it all more or less, they almost all attributed their success to their partner. Not because he had done half the diaper changing or whatever, but the partner was totally supportive economically and otherwise and always took their career as seriously as his own. And that's really the criteria for an equal marriage and it allows women as well as men to flourish in it. If it meant that he'd have to make the move and among academics that's often the case. You have a dual career family and Unfortunately, it's a two-body problem, and it's more often the, the man's body that gets the choice, the, the women's. Those kinds of decisions, which, which are very hard, and academia is particularly tough on them because there are only a limited number of jobs in certain geographical. But actually, make sure that the partner you have is not holding you down. They're pushing you forward. Well, on that uh, note, uh, Marianne, I want to thank you, but let me show your book one more time to our audience because uh, it's, a, it's a very uh, succinct a manual for the the problems that we've been talking about. So thank you again for thank you, Harry. Uh, for being it very on much. our program. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.